Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. If you're listening to this podcast, you've probably listened to the one that came straight before it, which is the first part of this extended podcast on firearms licensing, uh, recorded in Glasgow at the police headquarters with Chief Inspector Fraser Lamb, Sergeant of uh, Policy and Strategy Andy Kirkwood, and the Director of SACS, Alex Stoddart. Daryl wasn't there. I just uh, was taking this podcast all by myself. My suggestion is is that if you haven't listened to part one and you've downloaded this, go and listen to part one now. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll understand it. You'll still take it on, but it'll mean a lot more. And there's also a new competition that we talked about in part one. And there's also the winner to the previous competition in part one. So download part one, then listen to this part and everything will be sweet. Thank you very much for listening. And this podcast is brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. We hope you enjoy the show. Now, uh, we talked about uh, gun security a little bit when we were talking about air guns, but specifically now um, firearms and shotguns. Alex, if I just uh, start with you, legal wording, real world, how does it work? What do people need to think about when they're thinking about gun security in the home and when they're out of the home as well? Well, you, you have a condition on your firearms certificate that requires you to keep your firearms and, and certain terms of your Section 1 uh, or Section 5 ammunition secure. So um, best practice now is to uh, buy yourself a steel, pretty standard gun security cabinet. Certainly the Home Office guidance uh, reflects that. Is that a requirement in law? It, does this 68 Firearms Act or one of the amendments thereafter state that you have to buy a steel gun security cabinet? It doesn't. But, but what the law says, and what best practice suggests, um, are, are, aren't exclusive. So what we're saying is that follow best practice, and that will enable you to keep your guns and therefore fulfill your le- legal requirement. Um, keeping guns secure now can be a number of um, things. For example, you, you can still tie your guns to a rafter in the attic if you have the appropriate mechanism to do so. But if, you, if it's possible to put a gun cabinet into your house and possible to secure it to the fabric of the house in, the, in, in a strong way, then our, our advice is do that. The issue that we have is that when people are away from their nominated secure place, the house, what they do with the guns when they go and stay in a B&B to go goose shooting in the north of Scotland, or when they go deer stalking in a, uh, up in the Highlands or wherever, if you're in a hotel, how do you keep those guns secure, either in your vehicle or in your self-catering or a guest house premises? And that's something that's a bit of a grey area, and I, I'd like to really firm that up in terms of best practice going forward. So uh, our members... Uh, with the best will in the world, uh, uh, follow best uh, practice and aren't, um, they don't fall foul of the law. Mm-hmm. Um, Fraser, most people will be aware, if, if they actually have a firearm certificate, shotgun certificate, what is required within the house, your secure cabinet. Um, Alex just talked, uh, has just talked about best practice, steel cabinet, locked up, out of sight. If you've left your home and you're traveling and you're away stalking somewhere else, or you're shooting um, geese on the foreshore somewhere, what can people do to make sure they don't fall foul of the wall? I mean, you're traveling, you're in your car, you're in a and b Okay, think practically. What am I going to do? Why is that condition there, right? The condition there is to stop firearms uh, falling into the hands of people who shouldn't have them. Firearms are a valuable criminal commodity. 
we don't want firearms falling into the hands of criminality because they then very often get used as weapons to overcome the will or to injure other people. I think people have to be really, really practical here and think a wee bit, not outside the box, but however, look one stage forward. For instance, are you going goose shooting with a guide? Does the guide have a shotgun certificate? Can I store the shotguns with that particular guide? Uh, am I going to have to, what am I going to do with the Section 1 ammunition if I'm going on a stocking holiday? Well, do you know what? There are, there are a number of ways. What about a steel box or a, a mini safe which you can buy off of Amazon or any other retailer which is available? <coughs> uh, but however, you can buy a small security box and then attach it. For instance, in the car, well, where the spare tire used to sit or whatever, right? And attach that with a chain or whatever, or a security chain, security device to where the spare wheel used to sit. Split up the bolt, the barrel, all that sort of thing. A number of, uh, a number of, especially country hotels will be faced with this every day. They will have deals with RFDs who are nearby. Uh, your guns getting kept in a secure place, suitable place, etc. Don't let your gun, a part of your guns, get stolen because there's all sorts of awkward questions happen thereafter. Every every case will be put in its merits. If you leave a if you leave a rifle sitting in the front seat of an unlocked car, then and it's stolen, then realistically expect to be sitting in a dock at sheriff court. Okay, I I would be surprised if that was not the outcome of that. Uh, again, we don't make the decisions in relation to prosecution in Scotland. It's the Crown Office and Procurator Fiscal Service. But however, you would see that as being, that's just plain stupid, mm-hmm. right? However, the more barriers you can put in place of something, and something unfortunate happens, then, do you know what? Practically speaking, you used the word real world there. Could that person have done any more to protect that particular gun? No. And therefore, did someone come in with an oxyacetylene torch and burn through a cabinet, yes. Is, are we liable to report that person for that at that time because we've got discretion? Probably not. What the decision of the Crown would be, I have no idea, but it's not for me to say. But however, you've done all you possibly can, you know, and that's what we would be looking for. Realistically, that that responsible attitude, that responsible citizen, responsibility with a firearm and having that responsibility to say, I don't want this to fall into anybody's hands. The concerns, and I see it far, far, far too often, is unlocked cabinets, uh, insecurities, people being silly. Right, and it it's like uh, it may have been acceptable in the older days, but see now, put your gun away, keep it securely, uh, and uh, that's we don't want them falling into inappropriate hands. Full stop. Whether that's a member of your pub, a, a child playing about with a gun that's been lying in a on a kitchen workshop that's got guns in it. There have been, and I'm aware of people who have been shot, killed themselves because they've been fiddling about with a gun. Don't do it. Andy, you must have come across circumstances in the past where people pick up the phone to you and say, I've just had my gun stolen, I've just lost my gun. What, what are the, the sort of circumstances that you've come across like that? 
Uh, literally, lost a gun. I would be particularly interested to know if these are people that have lost a gun. Uh, it literally comes down to, and uh, there's two elements of it. There's one that is reported to us, and that's where they may well have done something silly, like they've left their weapon on show in the back seat of the car. Uh, they may well have been going to a shoot in the morning and jumped into a local uh, shop to get a roll. And they've left a car running because it's winter and they want the, the car to, still to be warm. And then when they come back, the weapon's gone. Other times is when actual police officers will go out to do, uh, or firearms inquiry officers will go out to do inquiries and a gun's been gone for a number of years and they just didn't want to tell us because they knew they would get into a problem. The first, we can deal with that uh, at the time. Should they have done it? No. Was it stupid? 100%. You will be charged. But I would rather deal with that than deal with a weapon that may well have been missing for three or four years. Uh, I would say to those people, if a weapon is stolen, lost, misplaced, absolutely no idea where some of these things come from, let us know immediately because we need to try and track that weapon down. And an open question to any of you, where do where do certificate holders sit with losing their actual certificates? From my perspective, phone is right away. The dog eats it, right? I mean, it's, it's almost an, ex- an extension of, you know, the dog ate my homework, you know. Just phone us, right? We're not going to get you into trouble. We're going we're to replace it. We're going to make sure that the relevant people know about it. And... We're just going to deal with it. And it's not, just pick up the phone and say, I've lost my certificate. I've no idea where it went. It fell out my pocket when I was at a shoot sometime. It might be down the bottom end of a burn. Right? No idea. Just phone us. Please tell us. And that's that's something which I would like, right? That we try our best to be transparent, right? And absolutely. And there may be sometimes legislatively in relation to intelligence and so on. Where we can't be transparent because we've got to protect sources, blah, blah, blah. Right? But however, in relation to firearms licensing, it is a transparent process. If we don't think you're going to be suitable to have a gun, we'll tell you we don't think you're suitable to have a gun. But please be transparent back with us. Because see, if you're not transparent back with us and then we find out, and, and, and one of my colleagues from one of the other shooting organisations is I always go in there and tell the police because they know a lot more than what you actually know. Right? Uh, not maybe in general, but however, in relation to that specific case, you know, they will know things which you don't know that they know. Uh, so please... Uh, just tell us, you know, and be transparent with us because what then, don't raise a question mark in our minds, please, you know, and if we're getting it, why, when did you actually discover your gun was gone? Well, maybe around about three years ago. <sighs> you know, it's difficult. And how do you, how would you as a person, being a responsible person, entrusted to have firearms, go to the police and have that explanation? And I think one of the other things is equate it to how you would feel at your particular particular role. You know, whether you work in manufacturing, engineering or whatever, see if someone doesn't tell you something and lo and behold, something's made or money's wasted and time's wasted and so on, how would you feel? And it's just exactly the same here, but we're dealing, we are dealing with things that kill people. The other caveat is the, the loss of a, a, a gun. Uh, believe it or not, we tend to find more people find guns, add guns, acquire guns, and when if you uh, firearms inquiry officers go out to do renewals, they find that they have maybe two or three guns more than what they should have, uh, and they've had them for a number of years, and they have to tell us. It's as simple as that. So what happens in that uh, particular circumstance? Well, they've committed an offence. Yeah. 
and they will be reported for that. So you could essentially lose everything if you've done. E essentially, you could lose everything, lose certificate, revocation, mm. and give you a. Well, I am aware of examples yeah. where people where the wrong gun's been put in the cabinet when the AFO's coming. And there's two questions here. Where did you get that from and where's the other one? Mm -hmm. Oh, I was just downstairs cleaning it. Aye, right. Okay. Alex, do you have anything to round up on that before we move on to the next topic? I think it's pretty comprehensive. It's, so. it, keep your guns secure. You know, these days with um, gun cabinet prices coming down, ammunition locker prices coming down, expanding bolts, that kind of stuff, epoxy resin, there's no excuse in your own domestic environment not to have a secure area for your firearms. When you're travelling, common sense applies. Keep it sensible. Component part with you if you possibly can. Ammunition with you if you possibly can. Otherwise, in some way or other, get it locked away. Keep it safe. Keep it out of the hands of people that are not authorised to possess those firearms. Now, we actually touched on firearm, uh, firearms inquiry officers earlier and the, the new system that's in place. So really, with regard to that, uh, what I would like to know just so that people can have this in mind when their firearms inquiry officer comes to the house. What are they looking for? What are they looking at in the house with regard to speaking to the actual individual applying and also to the, the sort of the greater family, the, other, the rest of the household? Fraser, okay. if you'd like to pick up there. Uh, there are two parts. Right? First of all, it's a gun part. Right? What have you got? So could you please show me that BRNO... Point two two long rifle serial number one two three four five six, right? We're comfortable with that. You've got that gun. You've not acquired any guns that we don't know about, uh, and that's what number one step is. Do you have the guns which you see, and do you have as many rounds of ammunition, section one ammunition, or or, or section five ammunition, which you're you're, you're allowed to have? Uh, I I often I especially within when I'm taking part in my hobby, oh, a cop came out and didn't know one end of the gun for the other. I'm actually quite happy about that, right? Because what I want them not, I don't want them to be mucking about with guns that they don't really know because people who have guns are generally experts in relation to how they open them. And there are so many different actions and so many different types of weapons that I wouldn't want a police officer going out there and saying, could you tell me how to open that particular semi-automatic or a 10-shot shotgun, for instance, right? I wouldn't be comfortable about them doing that. What I want is a certificate holder to show them that's the gun, that's the gun you're looking for. Now that's fine. Now number two question, which is more important, let's find out about you. And that means that we go through the forum and we make sure that you are okay. And that means if you've ever been reported for anything, is there anything we should really know? Have you been to doctors? All that sort of thing. Now... Again, one of the things that we talk about when we talk about this 12-week process about someone downloading the forum, filling it out and then waiting for the police officer to come out, one of the benefits for that is that it's an offence to make a declaration or not to declare convictions or if you've been to the doctor or whatever on your forum. That 12-week process almost stops that because all of a sudden you've got a cop sitting in front of you saying, are you sure you've never been to the doctor? Well, I was at the doctor for a second. Put that down. So therefore you're not getting any people getting into getting into bother or getting reported for offences because of ignorance. And so that stops that. Now that stops a lot of, I was going to say grief for me, but however, a lot of work for me because 
I'm not having to sit and consider a contentious application. This person wasn't open and trustworthy. Whereas the cop was there because it was a mistake. Whereas if the cops here, I'm going, they're honest and trustworthy and I'm quite comfortable with this and there's no there's no mistakes with the forum. But more importantly, it's about you. What are are you safe? Is there any chaos in your house? Are you suffering from anything which would impact upon your suitability to have a firearm or a shotgun? And I, I talk about firearms in the generality, you know, the guns. Are we are we sure? Is there any chaos in the house? Is there anyone staying in the house that we would have we would have concerns about who would be staying in the house? Uh, just it's about you. And and someone said to me recently, when I can I use that analogy? I was speaking to me. Says, oh, well, I get that now. You know, I don't want the cops touching the guns, mm-hmm. right? And you'll get people. I'm not saying deriding them. That's the wrong word. And I always I take that kind of wee bit personally because it's well they didn't know about the point end, the point end of the, the blunt end, you know, well, they do, right? There's a barrel at one end and there's a stock at the other end, generally. But however, eh, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with them. I don't want cops to be experts in relation to guns. What I want them to be is professionally curious and to go and lift on up stones, which sometimes for applicants can be uncomfortable, right? We've introduced a new forum, national forum used from throughout Scotland, based around about national decision-making model, what do we know, what's the threats, what's the risks, what's the legislation around about it, and what are we going to decide? Do we need to then go and visit that again? But what I'm wanting them to do is be professionally curious. And since they've been in the training, we are discovering things where professional curiosity wasn't deployed before because it was more of a licence and process rather than a, a professionally curious investigation. Uh, and they're lifting up stones. So as a result of that, we're getting highlighting, we're getting things highlighted as now that we didn't know before. Mm-hmm. And so we're that could mean to talking that. to brothers, sisters, ex-partners, wives. Mm-hmm. The firearm license inquiry report that the the FEOs come out to the house to use took months to develop. Absolutely months. If anything, if I, if I was to go back now and redesign it, I probably wouldn't have went to so many people. That brought its own challenges, but I think now we're at a point where people are happy. We went to shooting organisations for comment on it. We went to police officers, we're going to be doing them, uh, firearms inquiry officers. We went to risk management authority, we went to senior management, all over the place. We are now in a happier position. Is there a lot more work than what went on before? 100%, definitely. We ask questions that some people will not want to answer now. However, if they don't answer those questions, that raises a doubt. Do we? Uh, there's a part in the form that asks about children. If it, is there conflict in the home? Uh, and that's for the firearms inquiry officers to get a gut instinct. We are putting it down to the inquiry phase, the legislative phase, and we're putting it down to what else is there that we might not know. And more often than not, there's nothing. There is, there is nothing. You speak about, would we speak to brothers, would we speak to wives, would we speak to partners? Where there's a need we'll speak to anybody that needs to be. Uh, and if that means that inquiry will go on and on, the inquiry will go on and on, because it is all about public safety. We used to get planes, cl- plain clothed officers coming around to do um, do your the, the checks and your certificates, now in uniform. Is there a reason for that? Basically, big, since, we've, since we've moved, the firearms inquiry officers can be civilian staff, and they will... Uh, on occasion, wear plain clothes, or I think it's a, a, a navy blue polo shirt they can wear. Uh, the rest are police officers who firearms inquiries 
are only a small part of their everyday jobs. Mm. So they will turn up in marked police vehicles, in police uniform. There may be one, there may be two of them. Uh, but this is a part of their job. Unfortunately, that's something that we can't take away from because halfway through dealing with that in the inquiry with the applicant, they could get a call for 999 for someone trying to jump off a bridge and they will thereafter have to leave uh, to deal with that. It's the nature of the beast that we have now. I think also we reflect on what previously was there, 40%. If you stayed in anywhere in, in the most dense and in, in the least populous area of Scotland, but the highest gun ownership will be the northern region of Scotland. So, I mean, 40% of all firearms are located in that northern, between the Grampians and between northern. Uh, but northern, and if you stayed in northern or a gang or beauty or whatever, it was always a police officer that came, you know. And firearms licence is inverse to the normal policing model, right? We don't get a lot of people in Sucky Hall Street at 2 o'clock in the morning with firearms or doing firearms inquiries on a Saturday night, right? But there's loads and loads of people there, right? The greatest, the densest, and, and it's probably, that's the wrong... The greatest gun ownership is in rural communities because there's good reason to have them and people are involved in rural pursuits and, and, and so on. So, as I say, 40% of that demand was already dealt and has been dealt with historically by uniformed police officers. Okay, Alex? There's also a hidden positive there. If you've got beat cops who come perhaps from an urban background, no experience of firearms or, 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 or rural pursuits, going out to visit certificate holders or applicants and sitting down with them and talking through shooting in the context of their activity, you're educating a section of the police community that doesn't otherwise understand about the lawful use of sporting firearms. So as much as, yes, it might be a bit of a legislative... uh, an administration um, hurdle there, and Fraser talked about, and Andy's talked about the fact that, you know, you can get the bleeper going off and be called away to somewhere else because it's a beat cop that attends uh, uh, many of the uh, inquiry officer visits now. The benefit is, is that in a way, this brings the policing community closer to the shooting community. You can get to understand what we do as a community to see that John Smith with his three shotguns, his clay pigeon shooter, what he does, the context of that activity. So if that shooter... Uh, was to be on a foreshore or uh, by himself, and that same copper was driving past early in the morning and saw a man dressed in camouflage on a beach with a shotgun. You might not automatically assume a terrorist or some ne'er-do-well. That's somebody that quite likely and statistically very likely to be somebody undertaking a lawful activity. So I think there's a benefit there, and with more firearms inquiry officers, or rather inquiry officers being beat coppers, I, 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 we're happy about it, and it's it, it's a really good thing for the future. I, I think to to kind of develop that, there was I, I was told by, uh, by one of the sergeants down in, in Dumfries that one of the uh, community cops was given an input to a landowners group, and uh, the community cop had been trained to do was now doing firearms inquiries, and he brought it up, and as I say, a firearms licensing manager down in Dumfries says, "We ain't to tell you this." Uh, Cop stands up and says, you know what, I'm going to be more and more in your communities, right, because I'm doing these firearms inquiries. So therefore, you've got positive engagement with local officer, but however, he was there principally to speak about rural crime, theft of quad bikes, theft of farm equipment, all that sort of thing. So not only does is the officer out there dealing with the firearms inquiry officers, they're also in a position there to say, 
or, or to there's a relationship building there in relation to that they're there for other reasons as well. So, I mean, there's a drive on, there's, at the moment, in relation to rural crime and so on, there's a real note, there's a real awareness of rural crime, from sheep worrying, theft of quad bikes, all that sort of thing. But, however, the same cop that will be dealing with that will understand that that person's a firearms certificate holder and will have a knowledge of that. Uh, so, I think, right, the introduction of a large swathe of police officers who are trained to do this is part of their daily business. Uh, it's been a good thing. I think it will build it builds relationships within communities. I understand there is an uncomfortableness sometimes when someone says, well, Jimmy always used to fill out the form and it only used to take two minutes because they didn't ask very many questions. I think personally there's a danger in there because historically Jimmy might have just assumed stuff. So, well, I know that that person does that. Well, that person's circumstances may have changed. And uh, so I'm, I'm more comfortable and I'm more comfortable that I'm more comfortable that certificate holders are uncomfortable. That's maybe not the best way to put it. But am I comfortable from the professional curious part of view and the le what the legislation sets out to me to say that's what you've got to do? Am I... Do I think we're on the right message in relation to the robustness of the inquiry and the type of people who are doing it? Certainly, in the past, we had a small number of civilian firearms inquiry officers who were very, very good... They had mass amount of knowledge and expertise. They were specialists in the field. However, we now have 600 uh, trained firearms inquiry officers, be it civilian and police officers, who have a much greater understanding of shooting in general, based on a three-day course. But also, every time they do a firearms inquiry, with an applicant, they gain a little bit more information. We have inquiry officers now who phone me up off the back of these things, who have now became shooters themselves. Uh, I would love to say it was my three-day course that done it, but <laughs> I'm not really sure. Uh, but one of the biggest questions that always gets asked, why do people want more than one gun? Yeah. You know, why do they want two of the same gun? Whereas after a wee bit of experience and they go in the course and they go and speak to people and they'll phone up and go, Andy, I know what you mean now. I think it's also important to remember that if there are still FEOs in Scotland. Yeah. You know, there are firearms inquiry officers in Scotland who not only do a fantastic job, but are a complete wealth of experience for other less experienced officers to bounce off of. So therefore, it's not only Andrew they phone, they phone the, the, the FEOs who are there who are doing it as a full-time job and saying, and they again get the, the anomalies. Mm, I've got this instance, what did I do with this? Phone such and such, and they'll be able to tell you what they do with this, because again, they've got that wealth of experience and they're dealing with it on a 100% basis. So it, there's different layers of expertise throughout the organisation and being able to deal with that, and, and, and different... Uh, and it's just about tapping in. And if you don't know the question, I was told as a young probation, if you don't know the question, go and ask someone. Mm -hmm. right? and, and, and that's it. We had a query last, last week, I think it was, about a, uh, a calibre, a 357. And the question came and a comment was made, well, we never ever gave them out here in a part of Scotland. But nationally, the bulk of the country did. And we were able to sit down in the FEO who has no experience, had went away and studied the calibre and was able to come back and say, well, this is what I would think based on the training and the expertise and speaking to the applicant themselves. And a national uh, decision was made of, no, just because it happened in this one area before Police Scotland that you automatically fused a 357, that's not the case in Scotland anymore. You have a good reason, you will be able to have that calibre. 
It's an interesting point, and I would like to just maybe expand on that since, since we've arrived here, is caliber restrictions in itself. And those restrictions from what, what I see as, as somebody outside of uh, you know, the organization and decision-making is that these restrictions are based on cartridge size as opposed to actual caliber restrictions necessarily which is obviously the caliber of the bullet. It's always quite often mixed up. Is it a caliber? Is it a cartridge? Mm. Fraser, could you maybe elaborate a little bit on that, on the decision-making process, whether to grant or not grant a particular caliber? Why would somebody be given a 308, but they wouldn't be given a 300 Win Mag? Okay. It, it comes down to good reason, right? It comes down, why do they need that? Uh, do they need, there is good reason to why you would have a number of rifles at the same calibre, right, in relation to, uh, for instance, why would you need five 308 rifles, for instance? Uh, but fundamentally, and, and not wanting to get bogged down in the technicalities of it, of why you would want a different calibre, I would say that it is, it comes down to good reason. However, if you wanted a 308 to shoot rabbits at the bottom of your garden, it would be to me, you don't need that. Do you know, go and look at something much, much smaller. And, and so it's about good reason. Why does that pair? What's the good reason for that person having that? Now, if someone can say, can say, I need that, I need that particular rifle for doing that, and I need that particular rifle for doing that, and it's a good reason, and it's a robust good reason rather than a wish list. Uh, then, I mean, because it says that in the guidance, words to what mere desire does not equate to good reason. But if you can come to us with a good reason, you will likely get issued with that certificate. If you say, I want to shoot the rabbits at the bottom of my garden, right, okay, well, that's a good reason, right? As long as it's safe and there's a good backstop and all that, and it's the definition of a garden. Mm -hmm. But however, uh, if you say, yes, and I want a, three point, a 308 for it, well, no, you're not going to get that, you know. So um, every circumstance is dealt with on its own merits. You would need to look at why do they want that particular calibre and why do they want that particular calibre. Uh, again, we refer back to the Home Office guidance. We will phone up SNH and ask them for what's your thoughts when we were doing the internal guidance here. We communicated with a whole load of partners because realistically I don't know a great deal about shooting seals but there are departments in Scotland who are able to tell you, this is who we issue licences to, this is what the calibres you need to use, etc., etc. So that then, again, goes into the guidance. But it's about what do you, what's your good reason to have it? And I, I, hate to be, I hate to be dead boring and uncontroversial in relation to that, but it's just about what's your good reason. Alex, I mean, this is something that it comes up, it's a discussion amongst shooters fairly often, you know, uh, the caliber debate is something which uh, in intrigues a lot of people. And I, from time to time I do hear, you know, I, I wanted such and such and I, w I wasn't allowed to have it. Granted, that may have been now, slightly in the past, where, like the example that you gave, Andy, where it was a particular area where they wouldn't grant it because they'd never granted it. And maybe that has changed. But what's your view on it, Alex, and, and the feedback that you get from members? My view is that this is still a case in certain police forces in England and Wales and um, also Northern Ireland. It's less so in Scotland, where if you have genuinely good reason for a firearm, you can demonstrate that by writing it down in a sensible way, then the chances are that you will get that authority. Um, 
that also then goes to ammunition limits, which I think we'll cover later on. In certain areas in England and Wales, some of the, the legacy staff just don't get it. They don't get the fact that a 243 is as lethal as a 308. It is, fact. They don't get the fact that a you know, 4570 is you know, competent for deer if you can get it up to the energy and velocity uh, levels required of it in home loading. Um, so there's a number of limits there in terms of their actual knowledge. But where, where knowledge is limited, people should refer back to guidance. And that's what guidance is there for, is to drag people along a path of correct information based on peer and collective input. The Home Office guidance is, is, is constantly reviewed. I think we're actually overdue a, a new printing of it to update it with various changes. And the Policing and Crime Bill going through this year has got a wee clause that's created some controversy that we've raised uh, and talked about previously on podcasts, the Clause 81, that's now actually Clause 100 and something, which is about the fact that there's potential there for Home Office guidance. There'd be a statutory requirement for the police licensing teams to have regard to Home Office licensing guidance. That doesn't make licensing guidance mandatory or, 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 or um, that shooters would have to follow it, but licensing teams should have regard to that guidance. So if your licensing team refuses to issue you with the authority of a 357 carbine for whatever reason, you can refer to that guidance, and the guidance should support your application and good reason for that. If that is the case, then you have substantive grounds for an appeal. And we would support that. So the guidance of standardisation, it's about collective input to document that, just not going away from the definition and the wording of the various acts and amendments themselves, it's about the hows and wherefores and whys of licensing itself, the policies. And it's not about the police with the big stick saying, yes, you can have this, but no, you can't have that. It's about it's all coming together and going, right, OK, what is appropriate for rabbit shooting at the bottom of a garden? How do you define that garden? 17 HMR and other rimfires. Um, advances in um, bolt-action rifles and d- different rifle mechanisms. Is that a bolt-action rifle or could it potentially be a manually operated semi-automatic? So th- these are issues there that we'll cover going forward. So technological advancements are something that we cover at the British Shooting Sports Council in some detail. So guidance, st- standardisation of practices, um, something for people to refer to both shooters and licensing teams very very good thing for the future a statutory requirement for licensing teams to have regard to that big thumbs up from us i i, I think in and in, in, i mean I, one of the things i was going to say it was going through my mind when when, when ben Alec was talking there before he got into home office guidance was there is a document called the home office guidance which is on the internet which is updated the last update was april 2016 it's updated on a regular basis and we will follow the guidance I mean, and Andrew will attest to this in so far as that if someone comes with a strange request, I'll say, what does it say in the guidance? You know? Uh, and then you go in there, and it's a PDF document, it's really easily searchable, uh, and will you get an answer? If someone wants to challenge us in relation to something, then they can say, well, it doesn't say that in the guidance, or alternatively, it does. I'll be saying, well, it does. It says in the guidance, blah, right? And if it doesn't say in the guidance or it says something opposite, then hey-ho, the, the applicant who's challenging us or, uh, or, or wanting to discuss something with us, uh, they can, they'll be able to quote that back and say, oh, but it says there in the guidance, do that. So am I, am I bound by the guidance? It's guidance, it's not statutory. But however, and we can 
vary if we need to, and as long as there's a good operational need. But that's the whole point and the whole drive from Felwick, is here's a document which everybody should follow. And what does it say in the guidance? Now, if it says it in the guidance, then lo and behold, how can we have difficulty sometimes then going to do something which is not in the guidance? Mm. So... I, 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 th I think the 357 last week was a perfect example of that. Uh, 357, when you go and study it, is designed for shooting large mammals abroad. 357 Weatherby, I guess. Uh, but the Home Office guidance has one small line in it that says it is also suitable for shooting large UK mammals. And the question was, can I have that for shooting deer? Interesting. And so does it actually specify it by calibre? That, just that one. Oh, really? It was purely purely just that one. And I think this is where the query had come up. But I get queries across my desk all the time. We ha we, we often get 50 cal queries in, uh, and we have to send it to ballistics. And we'll ask for their expert opinion. They will give us guidance, and then we take it, and we marry it with the legislation, marry it with the Home Office guidance, and marry with what we're, what, what we're being advised. Uh, and some people will get it if they've got the good reason, and some people's good reason might fall by the wayside when we look at legislation and expert knowledge. I, I think the other side of that is that we're always very conscious that people have wish lists, mm. and to be almost flippant, boys' toys. And I would like a whole armoury, right? And it's like, well, do you really have a need for a whole armoury? Because the good reason is all about public safety as well. Mm. If someone breaks into a house and steals a whole armoury, right, then we have problems. And that's what the good reason's about. It's about, well, if you've got one rifle, if you've got 1.22, why do you need 15? So you're, so the concern there, I think maybe the, the perception is that it's on the individual. Why does that one individual need 25 yes. guns? But yes. what you're saying here is, well, actually, it goes beyond that. What happens if somebody breaks in and steals those? That's that, right. What is now an armory? Absolutely. So it's about why do you need that gun? And if you can tell us with a good and a strong valid argument why I want that gun, well, so be it. I've got a night scope in that one. That's set up for a night scope. Fine. Right, well, that's why that person needs point two point two twos. Right, I'm a target shooter and I shoot in a number of disciplines, but they're all point two two. but one's a different, a martini action, one's a, a bolt action, whatever. Right, as long as you can give us a good, rea a good reason, then... And, and, and just I'm supposed to develop that, we are not in the business of restricting guns. We are in the business of giving guns to appropriate, appropriate guns to appropriate people. And the vast majority of certificate holders in this country are appropriate people who have got appropriate reasons and good reasons. And, and it, I've heard a couple of times where you just want to restrict firearms. Do I want to restrict firearms getting into wrong hands? Absolutely, that's my job, right? But however, do I want to put unnecessary hurdles or illegal hurdles or not hurdles which don't equate to legislation? No, not at all. It's if you've got a good reason, come and tell us what your good reason is. We might disagree with you, but hey-ho. Alex? On the wish list, my wish list is that Section 1 firearms, um, well, Section 5 ammunition comes off ticket. Hopefully that's something that will happen. Um, we're working on it in the background. But the, um, my wish list is that Section 1 firearms go to a Section 2 type authority to possess. But you buy, pop into a gun shop, if you like that 2-2 rifle, go and buy it. That's what I would like. And that comes down to the principle of licensing the individual rather than the firearm itself. However, other people would want Section 2 to move up to Section 1, 
where you'd have to apply for good reason for each and every shotgun that you wish to possess. Mm -hmm. So what we currently have right now is Section 1 Section 2, where Section 1 you must apply for good, uh, demonstrate good reason for each and every firearm that you want to have authorization to possess and use. Section 2, you're not really required to provide good reason to apply for a shotgun, but you kind of have to state what you want it for. That kind of has good reason, a kind of background way. But I would prefer the Section 1 to move to Section 2 and Section 5 ammunition and missiles to come off, off ticket and just be, be a sensible as an inert object until you've actually done something with it to make it into a cartridge. That's, that's our current position. But as things stand, we're, we're comfortable with the way that Police Scotland works in terms of its reasoning and understanding of good reason. Occasionally we get people coming to us applying for the 338 Lapo Magnums, the 50 calories, etc., I've actually had somebody asking why he probably unlikely to get 50 calibre authorised as well as target shooting for deer stalking as well in the UK. Now, the guy was about my size, 5 foot 7, 11 stones, not a big kind of guy. So for him to be carrying a 50 calibre rifle around, 20, 25 pounds rifle, it just didn't seem appropriate for the circumstances. I talked him through deer stalking, what it would mean to him. He'd never been stalking before. And the fact that, you know, every pound... You, you carry for every mile on the hill, at the end of the day, you're going to suffer. You'll end up leaving that rifle on the hill and probably burying yourself with it. So um, it's, it's keeping it sensible. And at the end of that conversation, he didn't bother Fraser because he understood that that wasn't appropriate. So he's now going for, apart from his 50 caliber rifle, going for a 243 for rodeo stalking as well. Much more reasonable. Yeah, far more reasonable. The issue that we have is forces south of the border, some of them very, very good. They work very well with us and other organizations. A small number just don't get quite get it in terms of calibers and the difference between calibers and chamberings. So that's something we try and educate them with. Shin kicking doesn't achieve anything, but quiet diplomacy generally does. Uh, if we can demonstrate ballistics tables, energy tables to say that, look, hang on a minute, this is actually less powerful at 300 yards than a 243, that gets people beyond that lack of information hurdle. Hmm. Now, I was going to ask about volume of of ammunition restrictions but i think you probably answered that with the how many guns can you have and it being beyond just the individual person what with alex talking about uh, the moving between sections of being able to hold that would um tackle my other question which was with regard to um hand loading because if you're a hand loader you tend to want to have a larger selection because you're loading across different bullet spectrums even if you're not actually loading the loaded cartridge so if that does come into, I suppose that would solve that problem for handloaders. I think, I think to de not to develop the argument because I don't think I've got a locus in relation to argument about section one and section two and what it should be and what it shouldn't be and so on because it's not my role to to decide that. Uh, however, in relation to ammunition levels, and we get sometimes particular challenges in relation to ammunition levels, uh, especially in the opening of a certificate, right? And we we have a national table which we have the opening amounts. If someone comes with a good reason to see why they need more than that opening amount, then we will listen to that and we will decide whether their argument is good enough or their reason, the reasoning for that is, is good enough. However, what I would encourage, especially people uh, who are just new to the sport, and especially in relation to target shooters, is please get your ammunition usage and recorded because if you go to the club and you fire X amount of rounds and so on, then your certificate can accommodate that transfer. 
Uh, I know it's not common practice and so on, but the transfer of that ammunition can go there because it shows us then a purchase history or a usage history. If home loaders are loading target rounds, then please keep your receipts for the propellant and for the cases. If you understand the cases can get used multiple times and so on, but the heads, right, keep that because anything you can do to persuade us to say, listen, this is how much ammunition I've got and so on, this is how much shooting I've been, this is how many times I've been to the club and this is, it makes our life much, much more easy or easier rather than having to have a debate about someone saying, well, do you know what, I'm not using, uh, I haven't got a purchase history or whatever, but I want to open up a thousand rounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we have that conversation, please? Nope, I want a thousand rounds. Now, that, what my advice is, please, 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 give us, pardon the pun, give us the ammunition to make the decision, right? In the absence of that ammunition, we are we are placing a difficulty mm. because reliable, infra- reliable ammunition is probably more difficult to obtain criminally than a, 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 an octop firearm in relation to making or reactivating a DIAC or something like that, but reliable information, uh, ammunition is apparently difficult to get. And what we don't want, again, it's come back to good reason, public safety, all that sort of thing, is we want to have that right balance in relation to ammunition levels and usage. Sure. We have done a lot of work round, again, round about the ammunition levels, uh, certainly moving forward, because we were seeing that ammunition was being granted in certain legacy forces for... 76 rounds or 84 rounds. Uh, we've done a lot of work with uh, registered firearms dealers to look at case size and use case sizes as uh, what we what our starting points are going to be for ammunition, just to make it easier for uh, the certificate holder. Example of that is rounds may come in boxes of 50, right? An ammunition usage level or a, a, an authorisation level of 70 just causes awkwardness for everybody. Mm-hmm. Right, you've got RFDs who've got a, a box sitting in with 20 rounds in it or whatever, or 30 rounds in it, and it's got someone's name on it. You know, it just makes it awkward. So we went out and we spoke to RFDs and said, right, these are the ammunition. What do they come in? Right, and then let's look at that and then just let's be pragmatic about it. Because, especially for the smaller calibres, you know, if it's 250 or whatever, well, they come in boxes of 50, we'll multiply them up. The bigger calibre sometimes, and sometimes it might be that folk get less than what they actually want, you know, or what they needed before. But you go and ask them, you say, how many of these rounds? Bear in mind the expense of shooting some of these manufactured rounds as well. How many rounds did you shoot last year? 50. Well, do you really need 70? No, not really. 50. And 50 does. And it's just about having that adult, transparent conversation about... And it's about, it's about working with us, you know, and we want to work with certificate holders. It, it, I'm not saying it ties us up. It does tie us up, you know. I'd much rather be dealing with the other 52,000 people and getting them than one particular person's angst. We do get a lot of support from certificate holders when we do have that conversation where they will go away and come back in three months and we'll, we'll amend a certificate. We'll tell them, you've now got a purchase history, or use history, sorry, and we're going to up your ammunition. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Batch, batch ammunition is a really good example of that. Pre-Commonwealth Games, right, there was high-performance athletes were looking for an increase in ammunition because they had a good reason, because they were going to be practising for the Commonwealth Games and they wanted to have batch ammunition. So it was like, yeah, no problem at all. Once Commonwealth Games is finished and you're not practising as much, then we'll reduce that level. Another good example, anecdotally, is I think it was the island of Canada that had a significant uh, rabbit population, right, 
it's out in the middle of the Atlantic, right? So I had a conversation, really good call. It was really interesting, actually, right, with the, the guy, with someone who was going to be bidding for that contract. He says, can I get an authority to have 20,000? Or it was like tens of thousands of 0.22 rounds. Yeah, no problem at all, right? Because once you go, but see, once you come back, we'll just reduce it to what you want. He says, hey, absolutely fine. But the practicalities of it, how do you get, if you've only got 1,000 rounds and you've got a, a, an island which is overrun by rabbits, then... How do you get that? How far away Canada is? I've no idea, but however that particular island is, how do you get that there? So are we are are our ears open to these reasonable discussions, discussions all the time? Yes. I, I, I'll back that up. Another example is um, a stalker on the Isle of Harris, out of Hebrides. He's a long, long way away from his nearest gun shop, and it might not be that gun shop that even stocks the particular nature of ammunition that he requires. So his ammunition limit is up at a level that is commensurate with the fact that he's going to struggle to buy more of it. His domestic uh, arrangements are quite secure. In fact, nobody can leave the island without touching a ferry anyway if the ferries are working. So um, it's you know, that's sensible. Um, we often ask our members to demonstrate not only just good reason for the actual firearm itself, but build up your good reason for the ammunition lim limits that you want. If you're moving into home loading, then yes, it's frustrating to buy a box of 100 bullets themselves to load with, and they just happen to be ones that your rifle barrel doesn't like. What do you do with those? Well, if you're not going to use them, give them to an RFD to either store for you or pass them on to somebody else. Get your ammunition level up to something that is um, appropriate, you know, 300, 400, whatever, to allow you to home load initially. Once you're comfortable with your rifle and the load that you have, that ammunition level can come down to 250 or 300 or whatever. It's appropriate. So um, we're happy with the way things currently are. Police Scotland listens to our arguments on behalf of members, and we find that the, the feedback from our members is actually really quite positive. I, I was a bit scared to have a conversation with my firearms licensing team, but I, I picked up the phone, had a conversation with them, and actually the guy on the other end was really helpful. Or he shot himself, and he understood. I mean, I can attest to that. When I uh, started handloading, which was a lot of years ago, the conversation was, oh, that's great. Have, let me know when you get all your reloading stuff and then we'll, uh, because I, I guess the test was, well that's great, you might want to go and reload but are you actually going to do it? And I said, no, absolutely, I've actually bought everything. I took my firearms officer up to the, my reloading bench and said, Look, here's all my stuff. What I need now is to be able to you know, buy two or three hundred rounds because boxes come in boxes of a hundred and it was reasonable reason and it was no problem. So yeah, no, I can attest to that no, uh, logical discussion. We are, I would like to think we are reasonable people. Hmm. You know, and we can, we can listen to that reason. Now, I know that time is uh, ticking on, so I'm going to try and go through these uh, a little bit uh, quicker than we've uh, been going into the, the great detail. Um, first one, because I think this is important, uh, it actually came from a listener. With regards to your firearms officer coming around, should you have the guns in your cabinet or should you have them out and prepared for them coming to have a look at them? In the cabinet. In the cabinet. Simple. Referees. Will the will old referees be contacted if you are not using them when reapplying for a license? Generally, yes. It's the the question is why. Okay. Why, why are you, you using someone? Why are you using? Well, why are you why are you using someone else? And because there could have been a that person mean saying there's no chance I'm going to be a referee for you because of A, B, C, or D, and we've got to find that out. Okay. So, will we? Uh, should we be contacting every referee? Prior to that, yes, that would be my guidance. 
Uh, our advice to members is if you're changing referees, be honest about it and say why. And it might be you've moved location, that person's passed over or that person's not fit anymore to do so, or you've actually just fallen out. People do fall out. That's, a, that's an interesting point because I actually can't even remember who my last two referees were. So I hadn't actually thought about it being you know, more work at the other end. Conversely, right? I mean, we're looking at a kind of negative here, right? But however, someone moves on. So police officer or firearms inquiry officer picks up the phone and contacts the previous referee. Hiya, can you tell me why? Well, we've kind of, our applicant says, no, I've not seen them for ages. It was handy uh, to get this person to complete it. No problem at all. And they're fully supportive of it. We then contacted the ex-referee who says, no, we just haven't seen each other for or I don't know why they've not used me as a referee this time, but would you have any difficulties about having the person having a gun? No, not at all. So therefore, from going from one to two, or depends what you're applying for and so on, uh, counter signatories or whatever. And what you're actually increasing is our comfortableness about that person. So it's not to look at it as a bad thing. It's actually, in relation to public safety, it's quite a good thing because all of a sudden you're getting more of a positive feedback that this person, there's, there's no issues with this person. I'm assuming the answer to this question is going to be yes, but serving police officers who are also certificate holders, I assume they go through exactly the same scrutiny. Uh, if, if not more. Because oh. organisationally we can understand why that, but or, or it'll probably be, it'll be a supervisor that will sign off that particular application. This is something which I, uh, I, I know at least one or two people um, throughout my lifetime where this has been a, an issue for them with certificates, not necessarily that they were guilty of it, but accusations of domestic abuse, quite often tied with people being divorced. And that is a, or certainly seems to be a, a major issue with the revocation of firearm certificates. Can you maybe just explain why it's, it's important that you take that hard stance and also why it takes sometimes such a long time for the people who have lost certificates, certificates to get them back. Okay. Uh, why do we do it? Because domestic abuse is unacceptable. Full stop. That's a strong police Scotland position. Uh, that domestic abuse doesn't have any position in society. It's a crime. It's, it's a crime against usually vulnerable people. Uh, we have to deal with that. The second part, in relation and specifically in relation to firearms, is that by far the vast majority of domestic, uh, sorry, of homicides committed by uh, legally held or certificated uh, people who hold certificates to legally hold firearms are committed by uh, are in a domestic circumstance. So therefore, uh, guns, volatile circumstances don't go, and that. Also, it doesn't necessarily mean the perpetrator, i.e. the perpetrator is a certificate holder. If the perpetrator is a victim, we'll be taking the guns, we'll be removing the guns from that particularly volatile circumstance because we don't want the guns to be used as a defensive mechanism as well as an offensive mechanism. Uh, guns in volatile circumstances just don't go. That's strong position. The guns will be removed until we are comfortable that they can be reintroduced uh, in, 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 in a safe manner. Uh, why does it take so long? Because we have a lot of inquiry to do in relation to that. We not only have the victim or the perpetrator, the, 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 the person who's been accused of it to speak to, we will also do a lot of background in relation to probably extended referees, probably 
uh, family members, extended family members and so on. And all that takes time in relation to arranging for appointments, arranging to get statements taken off and so on, because we need to make that right decision. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got to we'll go back to it. What does the legislation say? Protecting the safety or the, the public safety or the peace. And realistically, why would the Chief Constable want me to introduce guns back into a volatile and dangerous situation? And that's just bluntly it. You know, it's that's why a lot of inquiry gets done, but why would we do that? You know, why why would the public expect us to do that? Probably not. Does it impact upon the individual? Probably yes. Uh, we, we are where we are with that. In regards to domestic abuse, we've spoke about various other offences and drunk driving and things. Domestic abuse, for me, is one of these crimes that could have been getting perpetrated for years. And it's got to a point where the police have been called. And that the victim might have taken that eventual stance to contact the police. We don't know what's went on before. If the perpetrator uh, walks back up that drive towards that house, uh, after years and years of domestic abuse, and the police only know a tiny, tiny part of it, that one instant, that one night, we're putting that victim in a position, if they have access to firearms, of what's my other option? And that, I think that's why we deal with it as well, or as tough as what we do. Get the guns out, and then let's put our foot in the ball and deal with it at that point. But domestic abuse, you don't know the background to it. You, it affects everyone differently and we don't know the scale of the domestic abuse towards that victim over a number of years. I think, I mean, I, I can reflect on my experience in relation to being a detective inspector within the Family Protection Unit in South Lanarkshire uh, and I had responsibility for uh, the investigation of domestic abuse within South Lanarkshire at that particular time. And I'm quite sure there'll be more up-to-date stats in relation to this, but it was, if I remember rightly, it was it was on the, around about the 13th or 14th occasion of being abused that a victim would phone the police. So that's that's happened before. It's happened on a number of occasions, and then lo and behold, we find out about it. But that person will have probably have taken a, a long time to actually pick up the phone and say, can you help me? Now, I understand... I understand the argument and I hear the argument all the time to say that uh, partner A says that partner B did whatever and partner A says it never happened and partner B says it doesn't happen. I am always going to follow on the part of what do I have evidence here for. Uh, I, I mean, I understand that. I remember reading one of the shooting forums, you know, the police go and chat the door and say, can I get my guns and so on? Well, are you you were the victim, or sorry, you were accused of doing this with a gun, and then the person says, well, I was, my gun was stored somewhere else. Uh, I've not seen that, right, on a day-to-day -day basis. I've never seen that. Uh, what I am faced with on a fairly regular, not every day or not every week, but a fairly regular uh, instances of people, uh, there has been a situation happened the evidence was there to charge someone, report someone, or whatever. Bear in mind that for Firearms licence, we're not dealing beyond all reasonable doubt. It's just the balance of probabilities. But, however, will we, remo will we remove the guns at that particular point? I, I don't think the general public would expect me to do anything else. It won't need someone so. charged either. Because if there's inclination that there is domestic abuse, we would take the guns. 
and then we would investigate it more fully, both from a criminal element, but also from the point of a firearms licensing element. Uh, because there is malicious complaints made, we know that, but it's taking people out of a situation and then allowing them to go back into a situation that might not be over, and that's why we would take them and then deal with the, the circumstances then after. Alex, so you just comment on this, and, and maybe maybe once uh, you say what, what what's on your mind, just elaborate on the, the particular circumstance, which I know is an incredibly difficult to actually judge, but it, undoubtedly it does happen, um, especially where you end up with a separation, whether a marriage or partner, and the reason for whatever the allegations is just to hurt that person because they know it might just be a big part of their life. If shooting is a big part of your life, a, a great way to hurt that person would be to make an allegation that they do not, uh, that they have those guns removed. Um, undoubtedly that has and will happen in the future. We deal with this um, pretty much every day at the SACS office and we work seven days a week. Um, I've had the most extraordinary phone calls, often into the wee hours in the morning from people who have either been uh, victims uh, of abuse themselves um, or have actually been perpetrators and admitted to me on the phone what they'd actually done and taken great pride in doing it. Um, needless to say, those individuals are no longer SACS members. Um, we have heard some extraordinary... Actually, we don't record conversations at SACS and everything's confidential, but if I find somebody calling me at the SACS office and telling me that he wants his guns back and I ask what wife hadn't taken off you for, for an allegation of domestic abuse and what, what was the allegation for? Locking my wife in a loo, urinating her in a bath and hitting her head with a toilet seat and admitting to it and having no remorse for that, then that's, that's not right. That person should not have firearms. So the loss of firearms in that context is the least of that person's problems, and quite rightly so. If somebody is going through a relationship or a business breakup, or whatever that life event might be, and we all go through chapters where people like us or don't like us for whatever reasons, then hopefully there's enough information in the background, both in terms of friends, family, associates, to be able to corroborate your good character. A police officer has professional curiosity, and it's something those two words of Fraser and, and Andrew have, have repeated a number of occasions. That professional curiosity should be very quickly be able to tell them whether they feel that there are alarm bells in a certain situation. Going along to do a normal firearms inquiry officer visit and thinking, hang on, something's just not quite right here. I'm not happy about this. I need to, as Fraser calls it, lift a few more stones. That's appropriate. It might be that actually the firearms issue is the small issue here, although in public safety it's, it's important for what we're talking about right now. It could very well be that there's a male or a female partner there that's actually been abused emotionally, physically for many, many years, but nobody until that firearms inquiry officer has actually thought to lift the stones has questioned that. So you know, domestic abuse is unacceptable, both on a physical and emotional level. Sometimes it's tied into other forms of criminality as well. It's something that we are um, increasingly involved with at SACS, both in terms of real cases where it's actually happened and you know, it's a case, an ongoing criminal case, and spurious allegations against members because they've tried to do everything else to get money off them and they thought, hang on a minute, I'll just get the firearm certificate, a shotgun certificate. So we look after members the best we can. Again, we only ever really hear one side of the story. We rely very much on the professional skills of um, Police Scotland and other police forces to investigate these matters competently and fairly. 
But one thing I can say is that for those members that have been genuinely uh, the victims of spurious claims against them, Police Scotland has looked at the cases that we presented fairly. It may have taken a bit of time to get to that stage, but they've looked at it fairly and they've looked at it with objectivity. And that's something that we're thankful for. And I hope that as we go forward and as um, firearms inquiry visits become a bit more intrusive, as they have done and will do in the future, due to Atherton and Derek Bird, etc., then that's something that we can be better at going forward. So those contentious cases where it's just an allegation against a member are proven to be false, we can get better to return the guns fairly quickly. If we can move on from there uh, to the medical part of owning a, sorry, not owning, but being the holder of a certificate, firearms or shotgun. A lot of people might not be ex exactly aware of the discussion or what is required of your GP, the information on you that's gets fed back to the police. So maybe, um, Fraser, you could elaborate on that a little. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think it was beginning of April there, there was a, and it is national throughout the UK, a system of notifying uh, GPs that an applicant has made the application to have access to firearms will be what's known as an enduring marker placed on a person's medical record with their GP to say they are a firearms certificate holder. The legacy of this or the kind of genesis of this is that uh, it's recognised in relation to significant cases that very often uh, health professionals knew there was a challenge, be it, be it a psychological or psychiatric problem, but there was generally a challenge. And they were in a position of being unsighted in relation to someone's access to firearms uh, and didn't or didn't know, so therefore they couldn't contact the police in relation to, I think you should have concerns here. There was a lot of converse, there was a, a number of meetings which I was part of that group uh, that involved shooting organisations. A number of the shooting organisations, uh, representatives from the BMA, Health, etc., Home Office, Home, home Office chaired it and led it, and the police. The fundamental position was, uh, at the very beginning, is that through the misuse of pe firearms, people die, or people can die, people have died. This is what we've learned from these significant reviews. How do we close that door? Now, after a, lo a long time of discussions uh, in relation to moving positions, and I think uh, the police obviously opened up with a position of, we need this because people... People are dying as a result of this, and here's the example A, B, C, D, and E. Uh, there was a recognition from the shooting community uh, and the medical community that we needed to do this. That came in on the 1st of April. I think it's, it's fair to say that it's been somewhat contentious nationally, uh, albeit in Scotland. It is, of the thousand practices in Scotland, it is a mere handful that we are actually experiencing any what the word challenges or whatever. I mean, there's a memo from the chief medical officer out and there's, it's co-signed by Mr Williams, our ACC, who's the functional head for firearms licensing. Uh, and it basically sets out, this is what, this is, you, the police will send you a letter on application. At 12 weeks, we send a letter to applicant, GP and division to say, applicant, please fill out the form, GP, have you any concerns in relation to this? And and please put on the marker, and then it goes to the territorial division for allocation out. Uh, it's a public safety matter. It, it is, uh, as I say, people. It's not only designed to, it's designed to protect the wider public, but it's designed to protect the certificate holders as well in relation to the 
we can be cited in relation to any particular concerns. Uh, I understand the arguments about it might stop people going to doctors. Uh, I think people would be really foolish to do that because it might impact upon their firearm certificate if they think that we will again take a very balanced view in relation to it. Uh, we will take the advice from the doctor. The doctors have got good advice in relation to what they should be reporting, what they should not be reporting. Am I really concerned about someone's ingrown toenail? Will it be reported to us? No, not at all. Would I be concerned if they were had expressed taking their own life? Yeah, absolutely. We should know about that right away because we would want to fundamentally put a bubble around that person, remove the most effective way of killing yourself, but however, uh, get your help. You know, uh, as well, that's what health would do as well. That's what we would do. That's what social work and so on. All these sorts of agencies would do. Would say, how can we help this person? Uh, but it's just where we. It's where we are. You know, I think it's very much a public safety matter. It's very much about trying to protect the public uh, and just to to get the appropriate help and to make sure that people with guns uh, don't use them inappropriately. Andy, what happens if your GP doesn't actually respond? Well, there's a process in place for that. We send a letter out at 12 weeks and the inquiry form goes out to Division for a Firearms Inquiry Officer. We are we would hope that the GP does respond. Uh, if they don't respond within a certain period, and it's usually three weeks, uh, one of our firearms coordinators, uh, who's basically a firearms manager for processing, uh, will contact the GP directly and provide uh, linked to the Chief Medical Officer's letter, which fully details their responsibilities and what they should be required to do. If uh, they don't engage again, though we tend to find that they contact the applicant and ask the applicant to go in, and the applicant on occasion will uh, have to pay uh, a fee, which has been quite varied in the cost that's been given by the, uh, the GP uh, for a medical report to be done. Uh, if they don't engage thereafter, the firearms inquiry officer will com complete the inquiry and make recommendations based on the information that we have at that time. Uh, it will come to us uh, at firearms licence and then we would look at the circumstances, the information and we will make another request on occasion of the GP or contact the GP from a, a more senior manager level uh, and then take it from there. Uh, we are in consultation with Scottish Government and the Chief Medical Officer and we're giving them updates as with regards to that. Uh, however, the question will be is, can we be satisfied as to someone's continued suitability if we do not have medical information? We, this is very much a matter for the applicant and their GP. Mm -hmm. right? We have requested it of the GP. We are, and it's at that position in relation to the GP. If the GP decides to say, no, I'm not going to do that, or I want to charge a fee or whatever, GPs are private private businesses. Uh, so therefore, nationally you can't set uh, a national fee because of competition rules and so on, but they are private businesses. And if the GP decides to take a position in relation to that, well, so be it. But that's a matter for the applicant and the GP. I understand it's difficult, but we found that a conversation between the applicant and the GP very often resolves it. Uh, that's, in essence, where we are with that at, at this time. The letters go out. If we un we will write to someone, if we have failed at every point, we will write to someone and say, we are unable to progress your application because we've got to be satisfied. 
that they are not a danger to public safety or the peace, and then it's go and see your GP again. Uh, we are, there are, I'm going to say a handful, I mean a handful in Scotland which are going through that process at the moment. Mm. Bear in mind we're doing 15, 1,600 applications a month and we're talking about probably less than the fingers on one hand. A question that came in with uh, regard to this particular aspect of licensing is if you had a GP which was particularly anti-shooting and how they, I mean, I guess they might just simply refuse to give that, that information or give you that letter, but have you have you come up against that at all? Uh, uh, yes, uh, and I, I think the, well, the advice within the guidance is that if a particular GP in a particular practice has particularly strong views in relation to that, then refer it to another GP within the practice, <coughs> right? If it's a single practice and the whole practice says, no, as a matter of conscientious objection, I'm not going to do that, then the advice is going to change your doctor. Okay. Alex, uh, what do you have to add with regard to this particular aspect? Yeah, we, we support that, that, that view. If you struggle with your GP, then just change doctors if you can. Some areas clearly that, that is a bit of an issue, especially in rural uh, localities. Um, our advice to, to members is when you go to see a doctor for a checkup, get your mole on your back, check whatever, have a chat with them then about your licensing, the fact that you're a certificate holder. Let them know that you shoot and ask them whether they support the changes that the BMA have brought in with, with um, the uh, Home Office and the police, even if they're aware of it. So, so before you actually go up for your renewal, you understand their mindset in terms of firearms, certification, and whether they support it. And then at least you're better informed and can make a decision as to whether to change practice ahead of time. Could you continue to uh, talk about this particular aspect as a reason for revoking a license with particular reference to um, cancer patients and I know that this has been this has been an issue in the past it is something that has happened where we currently stand with that and then I'll pass over to, to Fraser and Andy just to maybe add a little bit more to it We've had a couple of members um, actually in England and Wales one in North Wales where um, they have had certificates um, taken away because of a terminal illness, often that's cancer. And it was felt that the person might um, take their own life with a firearm available to them rather than go through their, their, their terminal illness and take it to its eventual conclusion. Um, we have concerns about that process. Clearly, for most people that shoot, it's a way of life. And... If you were left with a few months left to live, one of the things you'd want to do is to go fishing or travelling or shooting or whatever else. You want to enjoy your last time on this earth. If you take away one of those mechanisms for enjoyment, i.e. firearms, then you could be making a, a person's last days less enjoyable. Um, there's a balance there with public safety. And I'm sure Fraser and uh, Andy will talk about that. But from our view, we do whatever we possibly can to uh, act as an advocate for a member to say, right, for this period of time, we know the doctors say that they're going to be compass mentors, that they're going to be fine. It has not got to the stage yet where there's pain or it's not coming to the end. Can you leave them with a firearm in the short term and then manage the process going forward? So... What we're thinking of, of here is, and I'm aware certain forces do do this, is a risk management process whereby they look at the individual circumstances and take it forward on a managed process specific to that person and the illness that they have. Clearly, if it's a mental health issue, that could be entirely different. 
if it's severe depression, suicidal ten tendencies, or a degenerative disease like dementia, or perhaps even Parkinson's tied in with a mental health issue, then that is something that the police might take a stronger view on. Fraser? Unfortunately, we face this on a fairly regular basis. I, I have every sympathy for Alex's position there and how it's articulated. I understand that people in the last months of their life in relation to terminal illness would want to maximise their enjoyment on, on, on this. And it is just a sad fact that people still do still die of of these illnesses. However, we and I, I, I probably won't go into specific details here, I won't go into specific details, but we are very much in how can we risk manage this. Uh, there have been, I mean, my opening in relation to that was, and if you can, I'll use this analogy, uh, you're a member of a syndicate and you're very, very keen in shooting. Do the syndicate know that you've got an illness? Yes. Do they assist you? Yes. Well, I get driven and they help me over fences and all that. Make, make my life, they understand that I'm shooting. Well, how about remotely stolen your gun? Because practically speaking, and I'll be really blunt here, is it likely that someone's going to shoot themselves at two o'clock standing on a peg in front of their friends and so on? No. At two o'clock in the morning, when the world's a dark place, then that's maybe slightly different. So therefore, can you get the gun brought to the shoot? Can you go and shoot? Can someone help you with it? Can someone transport the gun from A to B to drive to drive? Yes. And can someone take the gun away and store it? Yes, absolutely. Am I quite chilled with that? Very much so. Right. There are ways around it. There are ways around it, right? There are ways that we can... Other examples. Uh, guns in the house shared by common certificate holders, one who is going to die, right? The keys are kept in a digital safe. So at two o'clock in the morning when everyone else is sleeping, that person may not get up and get access to cabinet and have access to guns. It's the access to the guns that... Times when the world's a, da a dark place mm -hmm. uh, that I am, I am concerned about. Now, in the first week that I came here, I shot an associate of mine, farmer, shot himself because he had a terminal illness. Now, that was, as very powerful, uh, but however, that's life, it happens. And we've got to... And I go back to this all the time, and it's it's about the it's about the GP stuff. What's it about? It's about public safety. What is what's about the management and risk management of people with terminal illnesses in relation to access to firearms? Do I want them to 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 put hindrance in their way? No, not at all. Do I want to manage it appropriately? Yes, we can. We can work. We can work around it. Sometimes people just put their foot down. They have put their foot down, and we're saying we can try and manage this for you. But I have a, nope, I want this and I want that. And sometimes we're backed into a corner. And we don't really necessarily want to go into that corner, but sometimes we are backed into that corner, which then brings out the bad stories. Uh, and I, I understand that, but I am here, duty, police and fire reform, duties of constable, protect life. And that is all about public safety. And it's, it is an uncomfortable topic to talk to people about. It's an uncomfortable Probably people will be uncomfortable listening to this podcast, but it is our job. It's what we deal with. We deal with, throughout the police, we deal with the places that people don't normally go to. And uh, that's our role, and we've just got to be sympathetic. 
do we want to go in there with our hobnailed size tens and stamp all over it? No, not at all, but please talk to us. And it's about, that's why I don't want to be going to a suicide of a certificate holder and then go to a GP and find out they've been dealing with terminal cancer. And it's like, why didn't you tell us? Right, and as you said before, people need to realise that you're not the enemy and that a no. simple and honest discussion may very well end up, you, you, you can work out a compromise. If you end up in a situation like that, we have certificate holders that we manage on a day to day basis or a weekly, week to week basis. When you speak, and I've sat in interviews as well with Fraser and with other uh, inspectors and such, and when you mention public safety, many certificate holders don't consider themselves within that bracket. They will come away with a comment of, I would never kill anyone. Public safety includes them. The individual who holds that weapon, that is public safety as well. And certificate holders need to understand that. Alex, do you have uh, anything just to, to finish up on that topic before we kind of wrap up? Yes, I support those comments wholly. Um, I think uh, information is important and much of the information in a timely way can come from the certificate holder themselves. So just be open, as in your application form, your renewal form, be open about everything, hide nothing. And that will go in your favour. You, you'll get brownie points by being transparent, open, by engaging with the police. They're, they're not the enemy. If you furnish them with um, real-time, competent information as to your individual circumstances, allow them to make a sensible decision on your behalf. And you will be involved in that decision-making. You'll be fully informed in the process. Fraser, just lastly, going forward, looking into the, the future, are there any major changes that firearms and shotgun licence holders should concern themselves with they might have to take consideration of going forward there's none that i can see on the on the immediate horizon uh, obviously we don't know what the future we're just less than a week away from the referendum yep. which is probably going to have fundamental changes in relation to uh, how the uk does its business and so on that's all to be decided the Firearms Act was written, the drafts people were sitting down writing the Firearms Act in 1968. I, whether that's changed in the next few years, I don't know. Uh, I think there's probably, I think people look at it and think, right, okay, uh, we need to bring it up to date. Uh, there are, what, 37 different pieces of legislation? Uh, but however, that's for the legislature, that's for... Uh, the, the politicians to decide in the future in relation to what they want to do with it. But we will... Uh, there will be fine-tuning of processes as we go along, right? We will learn things, there will be an event which will happen and we, we will look at it and think, we never thought about that. And we will maybe change processes as we go on. We are still a relatively new organisation. We, we're, we're past three years now, but to amalgamate eight different large organisations into one has, is still an ongoing challenge which we face. But within the firearms licensing world, uh, I, um, there's nothing that I see on the immediate horizon which is going to impact from my role uh, in, in, in relation to significant changes. It, it's, a, it's a really challenging role but it's a really enjoyable role because it does, it tests you. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things which I deploy on a daily basis which uh, I learned as a CID officer. And it's like, mm, nah, go and find out about that or go and do this or go and do that. And it, it, it's stimulating. And it's also stimulating because you're, you're, you're interacting on a rational basis, you know, and you're interacting with partners on a daily basis and every day is different. But, nah, big things in the future... Your weapons is yeah, obviously. I mean, two days' time. Uh, 
things will change and we react to the community will react to various things and we'll react to it so i should just say uh, for the people listening when you listen to this it will have already started oh, right. uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah from when we're recording this podcast uh, air weapons certificate uh, licensing will have uh, is in two days time but i just go around the table any closing comments alex is there anything else that uh, you'd like to add ask questions feel free to ask questions amongst yourselves just in these final moments the uh, Firearms Act are clearly outdated. There's a um, suggestion that um, codification of the Act and various amendments would be a good thing for the future. Whether there is um, parliamentary appetite and, and um, civil service appetite to do that remains to be seen. Um, air weapon licensing, we call it air gun licensing, just for the <laughs> sake of it. Um, I, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they're weapons. Yeah, they're weapons. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Airgun licensing is an issue for us, and we don't support the principle of it, but it's coming in, and therefore we'll do whatever we possibly can to help airgun owners um, uh, uh, stay within the law. Um, other challenges going forward, clearly the medical system, that that's uh, going to be an issue. One thing that we do um, uh, are unconsciously aware of is the fact that the shooting community, or certain certain sector of the shooting community, is getting older demographically. And um, that means that uh, how we... Um, deal with senior shooters is something that I think we'll have to address in policy form at some point in the future. Other than that, our relationship with Police Scotland is very, very strong. We're very thankful for that. Um, and not just here with Andy and with Fraser, but on a divisional level across Scotland, we have tremendous relationships. We've got a bit of banter and drive forward good conversations on behalf of members. Again, there's a call there to, to anybody. If you're not involved in a shooting organisation, whoever you join, join somebody. Get yourself insured. Get yourself involved in the work that they do behind the scenes. And you find that when you do need somebody in your corner, we are there to help you in a way that nobody else can be and probably ever has been before. Andy, final comments with you to uh, people listening and licence holders? To, to certificate holders, uh, engage with us, be honest with us, uh, and help us make your shooting experience as good as it can be. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been an absolute pleasure today. It's been a very long podcast, but we have talked about such a huge variety of topics, and I think there are a lot of things in there which will have cleared up aspects for, for people. And uh, hopefully for... We do actually have um, listeners who are not shooters and they don't fish, but they're intrigued by the, the kind of things that we, we talk about. I hope this kind of clears it up for them as well, because, you know, what we've discussed is almost equally as important to the people who are not firearms and shotgun certificate holders as it is for those people who hold them. Firearms licensing is about the community, and it's not just the shooting community, it's wider public that we are part of. And we have responsibility to each other within a community to be sensible and safe, but that is within the context of the wider community that we're all part of in the UK and in Scotland here. So, um, yeah, the, the call is for shooters out there to stay safe, stay responsible, and engage with your firearms inquiry officers. Um, make sure you get the right tea bags and biscuits when they come round. <laughs> Alex, Andy, Fraser, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for listening to this epic three-hour-long, very informative podcast that was split into two parts. So if you're listening to this now, this is, in fact, part two. So go back and listen to part one of the, the show. Join us in only a week's time. We're actually going to bring you uh, our interim kind of podcast that we do that we we bring together all news topics and things that have been going on 
in the UK and around the world, and me and Byron just chat about them, have a few opinions about them. Seems to be pretty popular every time we do it. And we are definitely going to be bringing in Chris Packham's new video, which is probably one of the strangest things I've seen online for more recent weeks. If you've not seen it, please go and watch it, because I was actually a little bit speechless after I saw it. I don't even know how he's even allowed on on normal TV, to be honest. Well... It is the 20, I'm just looking at the calendar now, that is the 21st of July, which is a Thursday. We yep. will be bringing it live on Facebook, but we will be recording it as well uh, as well, and releasing it on the normal podcast platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, yep. TuneIn, SoundCloud. It's, and a, it's on everything, YouTube. no excuses. Yeah. <laughs> no excuses. But if you want to interact with us uh, and see it live in the studio, then check out our Facebook page, which is Podcast Into the Wilderness. It's probably also worth pointing out, if you didn't know already, we have a new-ish website, which yes. is thepacebrothers.com. Everything that we do, all of our podcasts are there. All of the episodes of our series, Pace Brothers Into the Wilderness, if you don't know about that, you should, because we mention it probably every second podcast. We have a, a film series out, which is um, free, available to everybody on YouTube. Just search Pace Brothers Into the Wilderness and you will find it. There are three episodes out. The fourth one will be very, very soon. Yeah. Well, join us again in a week and thank you very much for listening. This podcast is supported by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. Thanks very much for tuning in.